millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa and Tales to Terrify. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 96. I'm your host, Nicholas seaton Clark, And this week we bring you a jam-packed episode beginning with a chilling bit of flash fiction by Molly Flynn, titled Daddy's Glasses. Molly is a writer from Lincolnshire, UK, and is currently studying a BA in English Literature at the University of Sheffield. She is a part-time artist, writer and procrastinator, and is seeking representation for her first novel. The story is read for us by Lauren Swan Edwards, who has made a name for herself on the operatic and concert stages as a captivating young mezzo-soprano with serious chops. She is a district winner of the Metropolitan Opera National Council Award and a first-place district winner of the National Association of Teachers of Singing. Originally from Los Angeles, she currently resides in Leipzig in Germany, and she can be found online via the link in the show notes. And now, Daddy's Glasses by Molly Flynn. I peer into my drawer of glasses, deciding, and empty eyes stare back. Most people don't notice the images pressed into the lenses, like the negatives of old photographs, but Daddy and I do. He keeps his glasses in the garage, and I'm not allowed in there. I select my pink ones with scratches on the lenses and Hello Kitty printed on the arms. They creak as I force them to fit, and the plastic presses into my skin, but the memories are worth it. While Mummy watches TV, I watch snippets of old time imprinted in the glass. Through the lenses, I see the park and my old bike, rainbow tassels swinging from the handlebars. The pictures are silent, but I remember the whirring sounds of my stabilizers against the ground. Then the ground is all I can see. Daddy helps me, brushes down my dirty knees and smiles. He glances over his shoulder at a woman walking her dog. Go home, sweetie. His lips move and my memory supplies the sound. Auntie Jen will take you. I'll be along in a bit. I nod, biking off and waving, but he's already walking away. A streak comes loose from my tassels and dances through the warm air, sharp red against the sky. 
There's a bang downstairs, and reality shifts back into focus. Daddy, I call, returning the two small glasses to the drawer. The stairs creak as I go down, and in the kitchen I curl my toes against the cold tiles. Daddy, I stop. The garage door is ajar. Daddy never leaves it open. Fiddling with a button on my dungarees, I peer in. The concrete beneath my toes is icy, and the darkness steals my voice. This room is out of bounds, but I can see the drawer where Daddy keeps his glasses. He has dozens of them. They stare in more colors and shapes than I knew existed. Some have lenses as thick as my fingers. Others have yellow owl eyes on the hunt for little mice. I can't help myself. I take a blood-red pair with scratched lenses, bigger than mine. Through the glasses, the room changes, and I'm pulled into a different time. The sunshine greets me, and I smile back, pleased to find that I'm in the park again. Ahead, a little girl rides her bike, and a dog snaps his jaws around a ball. I untangle a crimson tassel from the grass and run it through my fingers. There's a hand on my shoulder. With a blur of white, the image twists to show the sky. The tassel slips to the ground in a streak of red. It's dark, and I squint to see the picture in the glasses. For a second, I think something's wrong with them. I'm in the garage again. The table is covered with a plastic sheet, and there are tools beside it. The pictures whip around so fast, my eyes water, and the objects blur in splashes of black and red. The image settles on my hands, and my mouth dries. Daddy twists a rope around them. On the table, there's a glint of metal. I wrench the glasses off, and they crack against the concrete floor. What's going on? Daddy appears in the doorway, his face contorted with anger. I snatch the glasses, my heart pounding, and throw them into the drawer. The empty eyes stare. You know this is a room out of bounds. He roars, and I slide back, my stomach cold, and I realize, Daddy doesn't wear glasses. <laughs> Have fun at your next eye exam, dear listeners. Those of you who are regular listeners of our sister podcast, Starship Sofa, will recognise the following feature and the incredibly talented woman behind it. At last count, Amy H. Sturgis has recorded more than forty a look back at genre history features for Starship Sofa, as well as one for the debut episode of the Triple F. She's back. With a two-part examination of the obscure Australian fantasy novel, *The Demon of Brockenheim*, Amy holds a PhD in intellectual history and specializes in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and Native American studies. She lives with her husband and their best friend, Virginia the Boston Terrier, in the foothills of North Carolina. She can be found online at amyhsturgis.com. <laughs> Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Amy H. Sturgis. My looking back on genre history segments usually appear on Starship Sofa, but I am a big fan of far-fetched fables, and I was delighted when Gary invited me to step across genres and record some work for you. So I'm glad to be here. And I was hoping I could bend your ear about a not quite lost but almost lost work. Of gothic dark fantasy that I think greatly deserves to be read and enjoyed. 
I'm talking about the Demon of Brockenheim, or the Enchanted Ring. It was originally published in serial format in seven successive issues of the Australian Journal, the family newspaper of literature and science, between April and October of 1877. After this initial publication, the story fell into obscurity. It did resurface briefly when the Melbourne book dealer John P. Quain offered copies of The Demon, bound together with another sensational story from the same journal, Wolfgang or The Wrecker's Beacon, from 1876. He advertised the pair in his 1931 catalog. But if you go searching for a standalone edition of The Demon of Brockenheim, well, you're going to be disappointed. It's never existed. But I hope readers once again will read and savor The Demon of Brockenheim. I think it contains a lot of interest for scholars, for students, and for people who are just fans of Gothic literature and dark fantasy. As befits a Gothic novel, uh, much of the story behind The Demon of Brockenheim is shrouded in mystery. The Australian Journal credits no writer for the story. There is a teaser in the issue prior to the demon's first appearance that describes it as, quote, a sensational serial tale by a well-known author. Well, who is that well-known author? Whether that claim is accurate or it's simply a case of zealous and creative advertising, we don't really know. No well-known author appears to have claimed it after the fact as his or her own. Today, debate continues about the identity of the anonymous pen behind this tale. One possibility is Mary Fortune, who lived from around 1833 to around 1910. She was born in Ireland and raised in Canada before relocating to Australia and making it her home. Interestingly enough, she was one of the pioneers of early modern detective fiction, and she published for decades as Waif Wander and just WW in the Australian Journal. But a lot of people argue that the prose style of The Demon of Brockenheim really isn't identifiable as her voice. Besides, releasing a work anonymously rather than just using a pseudonym is a departure from her regular habits. That's not how she usually did things, so maybe not. There is another suspect, that's U.S. author Sylvanus Cobb Jr., who lived from 1823 to 1887. He wrote sensational stories that aren't very much different than The Demon in terms of voice, but these works usually appeared in the Australian Journal shortly after they were published in publications in the United States, often in the New York Ledger. And so far, we haven't found any U.S. edition of The Demon of Brockenheim. So, once again, an author's publication history seems to contradict the idea that that author is responsible for the demon. As scholar Tony Johnson Woods points out in her dissertation, Beyond Ephemera, the Australian Journal, 1865 to 1962, as fiction publisher, there's a lack of preserved records from the Australian Journal. So it's really hard to determine where or from whom the editors obtained their serialized fiction. Based on works with credited authors who can be traced, she did find a pattern. Quote, in the 1870s, the lead serial was more often than not an imported one, end quote. The Demon of Brockenheim was, in fact, a lead serial, so maybe its author and origin is somewhere beyond Australia. What is clear is that the demon represented 
at the time, something of an aberration for the long-running Australian journal, which started in 1865 and ran to 1962. It was styled as Australia's answer to the London Journal, which ran from 1845 to 1912, and the New York Ledger, 1855 to 1903. Johnson Woods categorizes the demon as one of a handful of, quote, European works, and by that she meant that it had European setting and European subject, not necessarily that it came from Europe. And this handful of European works appeared in between similarly brief waves of sea adventures and detective tales in between 1875 and 1880. And more to the point, she writes that on the whole, quote, the journal was not well disposed to the Gothic and the supernatural, end quote. The demon certainly contains fantastical elements, and it's nothing if not a Gothic novel. So, unusual for that journal. The demon's author, whoever he or she is, fashioned the novel using many of the same ingredients employed by Horace Walpole in the book that began and set the tone for the Gothic genre, 1764's The Castle of Otranto. As with the castle, in the demon readers find the aged castle, complete with mysterious chambers and secret passages, the promise of one generation's sins returning to plague the next, the deception of false identities, the struggle between the powerful and the vulnerable, the worldly and the isolated, the heretical and the pious, and the motives of vanity and lust and revenge. But the demon also offers some variations on classic Gothic themes, sort of inversions of reader expectations, and that must have played well to the tastes of the colonial audience on the outskirts of the empire in Australia. For one thing, the exotic other, whose death opens the novel, the young Muslim Selim, is courageous and noble when facing mortal adversity, and grateful and generous to the heroine. More to the point, he's wrongly executed by Christians, whose institutions of justice should have protected him from the false charges that he faced. Even his father, the crafty Hassan, surely he's more villain than hero, but he inspires no little sympathy. Really, the fact that he witnesses his son's unjust death and genuinely grieves for the lost Selim humanizes him for the reader. For that matter, the young Hildegard seems at first blush to be a traditional damsel in distress. She possesses few allies and resources, and more than her share of naivete— she is told lie after lie, she's intentionally manipulated by those closest to her, she's drugged against her will, held captive, and repeatedly threatened. But, and this is key, she quite literally provides her own rescue before her shining knight manages to arrive on the scene. Just like with the Muslim characters, there is more to this pious, chaste heroine than meets the eye. And I think these qualities mark the demon as a work of maturity and sophistication. As with many Gothic novels and works of fantasy, the demon is firmly set in the medieval world. The bulk of the action takes place in and around the home of, you guessed it, Baron von Brockenheim in Germany. And the use of real historical figures indicates that the novel occurs in the late 15th century, while lending a flavor of age and authenticity to the narrative. 
The centrality of a secret society in the story of the demon also indicates how the novel's fantasy is rooted in both the Gothic tradition and an amalgamation of real history. The secret society is a standard trope of Gothic works. The shadowy gathering, usually a brotherhood of some fashion, makes clandestine plans and exists through fear as much as loyalty, and it wields life and death power over others. In The Demon, this society is called the Secret Tribunal. The reader first learns of the Secret Tribunal in Chapter 2, when Hassan gives a cry, the summoning cry of the Secret Tribunal, a dread conclave whose terrible power no man might disregard and live. A better sense of the nature, scope, and deadly power of the society comes five chapters later, where it is described as, quote, that solemn secret tribunal whose power even the emperor himself dreaded, for so secret were its proceedings, so sure its accusations, and so swift its punishments, that none once suspected could escape arrest, and none once condemned could escape the penalty imposed, end quote. In chapter 17, the author notes that one of the roles of the secret tribunal is to act as an independent court of sorts, so it brings charges, decides guilt, and executes the punishment. Quote, All its meetings were conducted with the utmost secrecy. At the same time, its decisions were as just as they were terrible. No offender who had been properly tried and convicted could escape. Once suspected, he was summoned before the tribunal. The notice which commanded his appearance was served upon him by a masked messenger at his castle, in the field or in the sanctuary. Quote. These aspects, then, of the secret tribunal, which, by the way, is never identified by a more specific name, first suggest a parallel with the historical Inquisition. In the popular imagination, at the time when the demon was written, and let's face it, for that matter, today, the Inquisition often took on the particular face of its second wave, the Tribunal of the Holy Office of the Inquisition, or the Spanish Inquisition, which, of course, no one expects. If the Inquisition is one of the models for the demon's secret tribunal, this puts the novel squarely in a recognized and long-held pattern of Gothic fiction. There were lots of impulses that fueled the rise of the Gothic, and one of these was anti-Catholicism. So it's not a surprise that many of the early Gothic authors incorporated the horrors of the Inquisition into their novels. So, just a few examples. Matthew Lewis in The Monk in 1796, Anne Radcliffe in The Italian, or The Confessional of the Black Penitents in 1797, William Godwin in St. Leon, A Tale of the Sixteenth Century, in 1799, and Charles Robert Maturin in Melmoth the Wanderer, 1820. Another possible historical model for the demon's secret society is the mysterious group known as the Rosicrucians. Historians trace reports of this order to manifestos and tracts published in the early 17th century and circulated around Europe, and those assert that the Rosicrucian Brotherhood was founded in the early 15th century and purposefully kept secret for 200 years. These texts claim that the group embraced a blend of magic and occultism and alchemical practices gleaned from all over the globe, and in particular the Arab world, 
in their pursuit of hidden and sacred lessons of nature. Ultimately, according to these works, the Rosicrucians plan to better humanity and purify Christendom through their discoveries. Well, generations of scholars, including some luminaries like René Descartes and Gottfried Leibniz, have sought to separate fact from legend with regard to the Rosicrucians. But this is a real challenge, as the secret society, if it ever truly existed, has been an ingredient in fanciful conspiracy theories, as well as popular fiction, since its first appearance. This includes the gothic genre and dark fantasy. The case in point is Percy Bysshe Shelley's work of gothic horror, St. Irvine, or The Rosicrucian, a romance, from 1811. The Rosicrucians seem relevant to the demon of Brockenheim due to the weight the novel gives to esoteric knowledge and the blending of Christian and Muslim teachings. The study of nature, too, plays a part, and the issues of magic and occultism and alchemy. Furthermore, the convert members of the secret tribunal in the novel clearly see their role as just. They're good guys, right? They're doing what they're doing for the betterment of humankind and the preservation of right knowledge, in a manner that's very similar to some aspects of the supposed Rosicrucian ideal. This is all delicious stuff, and I want to talk some more about some of the other ingredients in The Demon of Brockenheim, including alchemy and the magic ring. So there will be a part two to this Looking Back on Genre History segment. And I also have a gift for the listeners of Far-Fetched Fables. That's you. I'm going to post on my blog the PDF of the original run of The Demon of Brockenheim in the Australian Journal, so you can read the novel for yourself for free. The easiest way to get to my blog is to go to my website, amyhsturgis.com, and click on Blog. And you can either check for the date that corresponds with the posting of the segment, or you can just go to the left-hand column where the tags are listed and click on Demon of Brockenheim. Either way, I hope you enjoy the work. And I will be returning soon to this podcast for the second and final part of my discussion of the Demon of Brockenheim soon. I look forward to joining you once again with another look back on genre history. Thank you. And thank you, Amy. We'll feature the second half of Amy's article in next week's episode. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We're going to conclude this episode with our feature story for the week. American Gollum by Western Oaks. Western Oaks is a former intelligence officer and special ops soldier who has engaged enemy combatants, terrorists, narco-smugglers and human traffickers, performed humanitarian operations over Bangladesh, been deployed to Afghanistan, and was nearly cannibalized in Papua New Guinea. The American Library Association labeled him one of the major horror authors of the 21st century, and his work has won the Bram Stoker Award, been nominated for the Pushcart Prize, and won multiple New Mexico-Arizona Book Awards. His military supernatural series, Seal Team 666, was optioned for a movie starring Dwayne Johnson, and his military sci-fi series, Task Force Ombra, is praised for the PTSD-positive depiction of soldiers in peacetime and at war. You can find him online via the links in the show notes. The story is read for us by Eric Luke. Eric is the screenwriter of the Joe Dante film Explorers, which is currently in development as a remake, the comic books Ghost and Wonder Woman, and he wrote and directed the not-quite-human films for Disney TV. His current project, Interference, is a meta-horror audiobook about an audiobook that kills and is now available on audible.com. We'll have a teaser for you at the end of the show. And now, American Gollum by Western Oaks. On Tuesday, I stalked the old section of Kabul where the minarets stand impervious to the constant bombings. Men halted their chatter and peered at me as if they knew what I was about. Women sheathed in powder-blue burqas hurried away. Even children scattered as I limped through their gaggles, worried at what seemed to be a white man trolling through their midst, his face wrapped in a black-and-white shimag body clothed in Pashtun long shirt and pants, but unmistakably American to those who would know the difference. I ignored them. Purpose made, I was on a mission to kill the man who'd killed my brother. Not my real brother, of course, but the one from whom my existence derived. He, the child of Shira and Emil Drachman. Me, the man raised from the mud and sand of New Mexico. Land of his birth, land of my birth, and the land where he was buried 
on the same day I was born. My not-real brother Isaac died three years ago while driving Masood's circle. One second he was in a vehicle bound for the airport for mid-tour R&R, and the next he was eaten by the rage of a roadside bomb as it chewed through him, the three other American soldiers in his Hummer, and seven Afghan civilians, including a doctor, a student studying social work, and a child, in the city for the first time for an operation on her lungs. On Wednesday, the military police chased me. I was AWOL from the army. If they caught me, they were going to send me home. It was too hard to find my target behind concrete T-walls and armed sentries anyway. This way, I was closer to the people, which also meant I was closer to him, wherever he was in this city of three million people. On Thursday, I witnessed a man on a bicycle ride into a crowd and detonate. He rained like hateful confetti at a non-existent parade, the sound of his death ringing through the streets and on up into the Hindu Kush. On Friday, I met the woman from the embassy. It was an odd thing, her being there teaching a group of children to skateboard. I remember my maker whispering to me about Isaac and his love of Tony Hawk and his years living aboard a skateboard before he grew up to be a soldier. It was the skateboards that made me stop and watch. It was her eyes that made me stay. And it was her voice that captured my clay-made heart. I wonder, even now, if it is my idea of what Isaac would have loved, or if this love I felt was an invention of myself. Can a thing such as me have these emotions? I felt anger. I felt fear for others. So why not love? You're not from around here, she'd said, delivering the ultimate cliché once she noticed me sitting in the shade of a fig tree, only my eyes visible through the break in my shimak. I didn't answer her. A moment later, she asked, Are you from one of the other embassies? It's probably not safe to have you out here. It's not safe for you either, I said. She grinned. I have guards. She pointed to the six men deployed around the park, each wearing heavy body armor and Kevlar helmets and carrying HK-416s. You sound American. If so, then you definitely shouldn't be outside the walls. What are you doing here? Looking for someone. Who are you looking for? I'd rather not say. Her smile fell. Why not? I'd rather not say. I got up. One of her soldier guards was staring at me and seemed to be about ready to come over to investigate. I turned to go. I got in perhaps a dozen feet when she said, I hope you find who you're looking for. Me too, I thought. Then I said it aloud, but I was too far away for her to hear. I have no memory of before. My first recollection was awaking fully formed in a Navajo mud hut that crouched in the shadow of the Chusca Mountains in New Mexico. My maker stood next to an ancient Navajo woman. She shook a bunch of burnt sage 
as she sang in a paper-dry voice. My maker drew the forefinger of his right hand across my forehead and traced on it the Hebrew word nakam, which I knew meant vengeance. But the American English was truly inadequate to fully translate nakam. I felt it mark me, the idea of a community having been damaged because of an offense, something which could only be restored by a deed I was destined to commit. I sat up into a ray of speckled sunlight slanting through the window and breathed for the first time. I had purpose. I had knowledge. I had a desire for Nakam. I found myself returning to the park where the children skateboarded. Half were girls, their bright headscarves stark against their black, white, and gray clothing. All wore elbow and knee pads. The girls wore pink. The boys wore blue. I read the signs posted garishly around the skate park. Although written in Dari, I could read them as easily as any other language. Youth empowerment. Pride. Take charge. Grasp your future. Know yourself. Love. Peace. All Western ideas for an Afghani mind. It looked as if the embassy woman was using skateboarding as a mechanism for social change. Easier to change the children than to change the adults. I could understand this. It was the third time back when I saw her again. She came and sat down beside me. I know who you are. I looked at her. I doubt it, I said finally. Corporal Isaiah Drachman, formerly of the New Mexico National Guard. Your tour ended three months ago. You're AWOL, soldier. I glanced at her guards, who were in place and looking outward, then back to her. You know me, but I don't know you. Call me Sam, she said, holding out a hand. I took it, felt the softness, and shook it. Part of me wanted to never let go, to perhaps take it with me. She made my decision easy by pulling her hand free. Cold, she said, smiling apologetically. Your hands are so cold. It's how I was made, I said, telling her more truth than she knew. She rubbed her hands together as she spoke, watching the kids travel up and down the wooden ramps. You have extraordinary eyes. I knew I'd seen them somewhere. We have a file on you at the embassy. Why didn't you go back when your unit rotated home? Why stay here? I have to say, you're one of the only people I've ever met who decided to stay. The others were at least Afghan-Americans. My mission isn't complete. That I said it surprised me a little, but I decided to be honest with her. After all, the worst that could happen would be she'd think I was crazy and not believe me. Your file says you were a truck driver. Are you trying to tell me you're on a secret mission for the government? She flashed a smile. Not for the government. You said before you were looking for someone. Is that your mission? 
Who is it? Mula Vorgul. She stared at me. Everyone's looking for him. What makes you think you can find him? What makes you think I can't? He's only one of the most wanted men in all of Afghanistan. Then her eyes narrowed. I read in the report where your brother died in an incident a few years ago. That's it, isn't it? Vorgul is a Haqqani leader. Did he claim credit? He did. She stared at me for a long while, then shook her head. Jesus, you're going to kill him, aren't you? I nodded, but was beginning to feel uncomfortable. I started to stand, but she placed a hand on my arm. Can I see your face? She asked softly. I hesitated, then unwound the shimak. She appraised me, tilting her head slightly as she did. Then I rewound the cloth around my head and face, stood, and hurried away. Now that she knew what I was about, I felt at risk. I kept my head down as I shuffled past the guards and into the gathering dusk. My maker sat with me for two weeks before I was ready to leave the sanctuary of my birthplace. The old woman fed us and kept fueling the fireplace with mesquite. His name was Joran Drachman, and he'd been Isaac's grandfather. He explained to me that I was a modern-day gingerbread man, a golem of sorts. Not the rough-hewn simulacrum which had protected Prague so many centuries ago, but a finely crafted reincarnation of his grandson. I've spent my life working for the Israeli military, creating battalions of tools such as yourself, each one a little better than the rest, until I decided it was time to make one for myself. The art came to our people from China, a thousand years ago, he went on to tell me. They'd been using golems for thousands of years, culminating in the creation of the Terracotta Army of the first Qin Emperor. But where the Chinese created their golems for defense, we created ours as hunters. And you, Isaiah, you will be my hunter. Over the days and nights, he told me everything he knew of my not-brother and of his killer, Mullah Vorgul, with the ability to never forget the information built upon itself until one day I was ready to leave. He'd had false papers made for me, showing I was a new transfer to the New Mexico National Guard. I heard the name mentioned two days after Sam and I last spoke. Mullah Vorgul, whispered by one man to another as they shared a cigarette in an alley. I was two blocks away when they said it the first time, but they were in sight when they said it a second time. Never more than a whisper. That name rang loud as a mission bell to me. I followed them as they boarded a bus heading out to Sher Naw. When they disembarked, I did as well. They saw me, but I kept my eyes down and let them walk away. It took an hour, but I eventually found them again, homing in on their voices on the third floor 
of an old Soviet apartment building. I squatted with my back against the building and listened, my hearing so much more than any mere human could have. They spoke of American soldiers. They spoke of the need to cleanse the earth of our stink. They spoke of bombs. They spoke of vengeance. I couldn't help but smile. I knew more about vengeance than they could ever hope to know. I was vengeance. The two men left the next morning. I followed them throughout the city, sometimes close enough to hear, sometimes too far away, until they returned once more. They spoke again of American soldiers and bombs. Then they mentioned Vorgul. They said his name reverently. Then they said words which caused me concern. They spoke of skateboards, and they also spoke of bombs. I went to them. I broke the legs of one and the arms of the other. I tied them to chairs and searched their meager place. I found maps taped to the wall of one room, along with a collection of prepaid cell phones, burners. What is it you want? they asked. For ghoul. Their spines stiffened, despite their pain. We won't tell you. Then I broke the rest of their arms and legs. One passed out. The other whimpered gently, too tired to continue screaming. Tell me of skateboards, I said, squatting between them, staring at a cockroach scuttling across the floor. Tell me of skateboards and bombs. This they told me. Then I killed them. On the final day of my creation, my maker brought Isaac's parents in. Shira was in tears and threw herself at her father. Emil stood in the doorway, his face unreadable in shadow. You mustn't do this, Papa, she cried. My maker gripped her by the shoulders and held her at arm's length. This is my choice. It must be done. Isaac wouldn't want this, she said. Isaac would understand this better than either of you. He stared hard at his son-in-law. Take your wife. Emil came over and put his arms around her shoulders. Just let him do it, damn it. My maker stood, towering over me as I lay on my back on the table. Isaac understood the need to be a part of something greater than oneself. He knew the importance of protecting those things he loved. But this is America, Papa, not Israel. We are not so different, our two countries. America is as surrounded by her enemies as Israel. Make no mistake that the oceans can protect her. They haven't before, and they won't now. The only way to protect is to find and kill your enemies. Emil shook his head. Enough of this, old man. Your daughter moved here with me to get away from such thinking. My maker laughed. And look what good it did. What is it you want of us? Emil said. To bear witness to your vengeance. He placed his hand on my head. Arise and introduce yourself, my American golem. I sat up and stared at the parents of the man from which I was made. My maker had burned him and ground him up, then had mixed his remains with the land. I felt a connection to these two people before me. 
I had memories of them that came fractured and chaotic. He look, looks human, Shira said. He looks like him, tears gathered in Emil's eyes. Damn you! My greatest creation. He shall be Isaac's brother. Hello. My name is Isaiah. Isaiah Drachman. I said, for the first time speaking to someone other than my maker. Dear God, Emil whispered. Not God. A golem, my maker said. I held out my hand as Isaac's memory swept through me like a storm. I couldn't help myself as I said, Oh, mother. Then she fainted. I was drawn back to the skateboarders both because of my worry for their safety and because of something insatiable about Sam. The two low-level Hakani militants had known only that the park was a target. They hadn't known when, but had believed the attack would happen soon. I felt the need to warn someone. I felt the need to save them, which felt strange, because I'd never felt the pull of something other than my singular mission. Even when I'd pretended to be a soldier, it had been in order to get here and find Vorgul. Did I intrinsically know that this was something that Isaac would have wanted done? Or was this me? Was there a difference? When I arrived, Sam was working with the girls, posing them and taking pictures. I sat in my usual place beneath the fig tree. I had been sitting there for three or four minutes when a man came and sat down beside me. He wore a polo shirt beneath body armor and 5'11 pants. He wore Ray-Bans and had blonde hair cut too short to comb. He had a 9mm pistol in a cross-draw holster attached to the front of his body armor. I'm Scott, he said. He neither shook my hand nor did he look at me. Instead, he kept his gaze steadily focused on the skateboarders. I hear you're looking for Vorgul. Sam had told someone about me. Had my desire put my mission at risk? Was this what was meant to be human? I cursed myself. As if he could read my mind. Don't be nervous. Don't worry. We have no intention of stopping you. He let that sink in for a moment, then added, I work at the embassy, too. What is it you want? I asked. The same thing you want. We don't care if you do it or if we get to him first. We just want to take him down. Sam came over and sat on the other side of me. I see you've met Scott. I turned toward her. Danger is coming. Her smile fell. What's that supposed to mean? I found two men talking about Vorgul and this skate park. When? Where? Scott demanded, looking at me for the first time. No time frame. Soon, I think. I saw him exchange a look with Sam, and then I knew the truth of it. You knew it. No, you planned it. This place, these children, they're a lure. Embarrassment took root in Sam's eyes. She couldn't meet my steady, challenging gaze. We thought it might be too lucrative a target, especially after the Time magazine article that came out last week. 
But the children are safe. They were never in any danger. You're kidding yourselves if you believe that. Whatever it had been that had drawn me to Sam was now a phantom of what it was. She had commented about the coldness of my skin. That was no match for the empty cavern of her heart. Where are these two militants? Scott asked. I gave him the address. They are no longer living, I said. Sam's eyes widened. You killed them? I watched as a girl of about twelve soared down a ramp, her knees slightly bent, her arms graceful as they caught air. It's what I do. Can you explain to me why there's no record of you before last year? Scott asked, his voice suddenly official. I'd rather not say. You're on record as being the brother of Isaac Drachman, but he never listed a sibling on any of his paperwork. I can't help that, I said. Scott persisted. Who do you work for? I laughed. He thought I was a spook. He'd never understand, so I just didn't answer him. You know we can bring you in if we want to, he said. I thought you said you had no intention of stopping me. That was before. Before what? Before I gave you a lead that might possibly help you find Vorgul? Before I gave you information that would save lives? They exchanged glances. This wasn't going as they'd planned. So sad when reality intrudes on a well-planned idea. I decided to ask my own questions. What do you know about Vorgul? Do you know where he is? We have reports that he left his safe house in Waziristan and is heading into Kabul. Scott reached out and grasped my wrist. Let me see your face. I pulled free of his grasp. What is it you think you want to see? He grabbed my wrist again, and once again I pulled free. I just want to see... You're not human, are you? The question floored me. What are you? His eyes were fixed on me as he waited for the answer. I am Golem. His face froze. Holy shit, he said finally. You're one of them. Why were you made? For Isaac Drachman. Are you free thinking? He asked. I shrugged. How can one know such a thing? Are you alone, or are there more of you? I decided it was my turn to ask a question. How did you know? He didn't hesitate to respond. Isaac's grandfather is on our watch list. We know he traveled from Israel to America and stayed for several weeks. He's part of a special division of the IDF we've been trying to figure out. The fact that he knew this left little doubt what section of the embassy he worked for. You're not real, Sam said, her voice filled with awe. I turned and placed a hand on her cheek, feeling the softness, the warmth of living flesh. Does this feel real to you? She pulled away from my hand. I'm sorry. What I meant was, you're not human. I thought Scott was crazy when he came to me with his idea. Scott interrupted. What happened to Yoram Drachman? We have no record of him leaving America. He's dead. This gave him pause. Did you kill him? That's personal. Did he make more? 
that's personal. Now it was his turn to laugh. A golem invoking personal privacy? I shrugged. Why not? I'm as alive as you. He shook his head. We have souls. How do you know I don't have one? Jesus, was all he could say. I stood, ready to leave. Scott didn't say anything, but Sam stopped me and held out her hand. In it was a cell phone. Here, take this. When I hesitated, she said, It'll let us track you and tell us where you are. We can also call and tell you if we have information about Vorgul. I took the phone and left. A mile later, I tossed it in the back of a donkey cart, headed out of town. They came at me the next day. All their talk about letting me continue my mission meant nothing. I noticed them following me in an up-armored SUV just after noon. I'd passed two Friday food markets where farmers brought in their own fruits and vegetables, often by donkey cart. I moved through the crowd slowly, like I was browsing. But like always, I was listening for any mention of Vorgul. I could hear it even when whispered. The SUV was at both locations. I decided to lead them to a place I knew. I acquired a limp as I shuffled down an alley and into a dead end that cul-de-sac between three four-story buildings. I waited until the SUV roared into the space. Four men leaped out of the vehicle and took up distance around me. They were operators, probably TF-310 or 240. From their helmets to their knee pads to their body armor, almost hidden beneath their one-size-too-large black shirts, to the way they held their HKs, all spoke to these men being pros. They exuded confidence. They'd clearly encountered a lot. Too bad they'd never encountered a golem. They'd have known better. What is it? I asked, deciding not to feign anything. Mr. Scott says you're to come with us. The speaker was a muscular black man who wore a scar down one cheek. And where are you going? Some place where he can talk to you. Study me was more like it. Sounds like Parwan. I'll take a pass. They shifted uncomfortably on their feet. They weren't prepared for my response. I wondered how much Scott had told them about me. I wondered how much he knew about golems. Their leader spoke again. I'm not going to tell you again, sir. You need to come with... He never finished, as I flowed toward him. Moving faster than any human... My limbs weren't held back by the mechanism of joints and muscles. I was a single entity. I was a human-sized amoeba. I was death. I grabbed his rifle and twisted it so quickly it broke both his wrists. I snapped the weapon in half and jammed one piece through his face. I moved on to the next man as they fired, dozens of 5.56 rounds piercing my flesh. I felt no pain. I barely felt the impacts. I reached the next man and broke him down. The others tried to run, but I wouldn't let them. I ripped them apart and left their pieces in a pile inside the back of the SUV. When it was all over, I stripped and found where Sam or Scott had attached the tracking device to the back of my clothes. I left the device and my clothes in the SUV and walked naked for a time. This was Kabul, 
so hardly anyone noticed. The next day found me in the slums of Charkala. I heard his name everywhere. Vorgul was back in town, they whispered. He had a target, they said prophetically. So many were talking, it was confusing. I spent the day moving from home to home, but no one knew anything further. It wasn't until after midnight that I heard his name only twice. Once from a young man who was praying to grow up and be like him, and the second time from a group of men on the eighth floor of an abandoned hospital planning their next target. I listened to them and waited for the man I had been made to kill. After Shira and Emil left, my maker brought out a knife. An interesting thing about golems, he said, is that they are not so hard to make. Making them last. Now that is the difficulty. The ancient Navajo woman entered the room with two younger girls dressed in traditional garb. Their leather dresses had white and red beads sewn to make symbols I didn't recognize. The old woman turned to one of the younger ones. Get a bucket and a towel, she said in Navajo. There's going to be a mess. One girl ran out, but soon returned. What are you going to do? I asked my maker. A ceremony that can only be done once. The girls began to finger-paint symbols on the table while the woman scattered small white petals along the ground. When they finished, I made to lie down once more, but my maker stopped me. This is not for you. This is for me. He lay down and handed me the knife. I felt a moment of panic. What is it you want me to do with this? There's a way I can pass my art along which can let you live forever. Isaac's memories of my maker flashed through my mind like a movie trailer of important events. An echo of an emotion sparked in my chest and I realized I didn't want this man to die. My maker saw me and shook his head. We're ready to begin, he said, then closed his eyes and began to chant. I held the knife for a long time, then used it as I was told. Vorgul never showed that night, but the plan to attack the children was in place. Neither Sam nor Scott was at the skate park, which meant their guards were gone as well. Nine children played on the ramps, roaring up and down them on skateboards. Nine innocent children who were pawns in a political game that was going to get them killed. Vorgul. I heard the name clearly and spun toward it. An up-armored SUV waited at the curb. Scott sat in the passenger seat. Two men in back and the driver stared at me with laser eyes. I saw Scott's mouth move again. Vorgul. How long had they been waiting for me? How many of them were there? Or were they merely here to witness the deaths of the children? Nothing like the murders of children to spark humanity's rage against the militants. Families ensconced in their living rooms might not care about foreign men killing other foreign men. But when foreign men killed children, that was a different story. Poor ghoul, he said it again, and this time smiled. He made a motion with his hand, and the SUV roared away. I'm not sure how long I stood there but it wasn't until I heard the name spoken yet again that I moved. 
Vorgul. I turned reluctantly, already tired of this game. But instead of another SUV, or Scott, or even Sam, I saw a young man walking unsteadily, clothed in a heavy jacket. He mumbled to himself, both of his hands flexed and unflexed. I watched a moment, then realized what he was going to do. I ran toward the children skateboarding in the park. They'd been promised a dream, which was about to become a nightmare. My shimak flew free, and for a moment I was a bird, descending, wings out and flapping behind me. Then the wind took the cloth, and I was once again a golem. The children were too far for me to reach, but not far enough away to be outside the kill zone. The bomber reached into the pocket of his jacket and pulled out a cell phone. He dialed a number and began to speak into it as if he was FaceTiming. The Dari translated in my mind, Vorgul, I do this for you. I do this so people will see, so that they will attend and know the terrible violence that has been brought upon us. Praise be to Allah. He held the phone out in front of him to give Vorgul a view of what was about to happen then began striding toward the skateboarding children. Any moment now and he'd detonate, sending shrapnel and hate into those whose only crime was to fall prey to a woman who taught them to skateboard for a foul purpose. As a golem, I fell upon him, bringing him down, flattening him, covering him with my body. For one brief moment, I was a man with the courage to ignore my mission and do what was right. I was Isaac, the better part of him fueled by his desire to do good. I was Yoram, fueled with the ability to be reborn. I was the American golem, whose ability to avenge was unmatched. Then he detonated, and I felt myself flung in a million directions as the pieces of me separated and rained down upon this small piece of Afghanistan. I no longer had ears, but I could hear them scream. I no longer had eyes, but I could see them run. I was almost elemental, the blast having blown me into so many pieces, I was indiscernible from what I once was. I remained in place as the police came to investigate, then the military, then the Americans. They cleaned up the remains of the bomber, then put tape around the area I occupied. Night fell. Then dawn came. Then night fell again. I was present even though my body wasn't. But that was okay. The rains would eventually come, and when they did, they'd push pieces of me together until one day there would be enough of me that I could reform. My maker had made sure I had the knowledge. His was my first murder. One day, I'd be the American golem once more. One day, I'd have enough of me to resume my chore and exact nakam on Vorgul. And Scott. And Sam. And until then... Until then... I'd watch and wait, bearing witness to life, 
from my low angle. Yes, one day, one day soon, when the rains come and wash me together. We were very much drawn to this story by Weston's use of an uncommon and underused creature in a painfully familiar setting and hooked by the Gollum's simple mission of vengeance in a moral grey zone. It's an amazing character arc. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it around all you like but you can't change it and you can't sell it. And be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. Far-fetched fables reserves the right to send animated clay soldiers after any and all violators. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. I'm off to go and finish baking my own particular golem. I'll see you all next week. Bye now. Something wants in to your head through this audiobook. Interference by Eric Luke. An experiment in meta horror. Available at quillhammer.com. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.